0: Hi everyone, Andrew here. Soon, it will be time to start a new book on Send Me to Sleep, and we want you to help us decide what to read. Follow the link in the episode show notes and submit your vote. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Chapter 28 of Emily of New Moon by L.M. Montgomery. In the last chapter, Emily returned to New Moon and was given a room of her very own. In tonight's story... Emily's relatives debate her future. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy, take a deep, relaxing breath, and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 28 A Weaver of Dreams It took Emily several weeks to make up her mind whether she liked Mr. Carpenter or not. She knew she did not dislike him, not even though his first greeting shot at her on the opening day of school in a gruff voice. Accompanied by a startling lift of his spiky grey brows, was So, you're the girl that writes poetry, eh? Better stick to your needle and duster. Too many fools in the world trying to write poetry and failing. I tried it myself once, got better sense now. You don't keep your nails clean thought Emily. But he upset every kind of school tradition so speedily and thoroughly that Isla, who gloried in upsetting things and hated routine, was the only scholar that liked him from the start. Some never liked him. The Rhoda Stewart type, for example, But most of them came to it after they got used to never being used to anything. And Emily finally decided that she liked him tremendously. Mr. Carpenter was somewhere between 40 and 50. A tall man with an upstanding shock of bushy grey hair, bristling grey moustache and eyebrows, a translucent beard, bright blue eyes out of which his wild life had not yet burned the fire and a long, lean, greyish face deeply lined. He lived in a little two-roomed house below the school with a shy mouse of a wife. He never talked of his past or offered an explanation of the fact that at his age he had no better profession than teaching a district school for a pittance of salary. But the truth leaked out after a while, for Prince Edward Island is a small province, and everybody in it knows something about everybody else. So eventually, Blairwater people, and even the school children, understood that Mr. Carpenter had been a brilliant student in his youth and had had his eye on the ministry. But at college, he had got in with a fast set. Blairwater people nodded heads slowly and whispered the dreadful phrase portentously, and the fast set had ruined him. He took to drink and went to the dogs generally. And the upshot of it all was that Francis Carpenter, Who had led his class in his first and second years at McGill, and for whom his teacher had predicted a great career, was a country school teacher at 45, with no prospect of ever being anything else. Perhaps he was resigned to it, perhaps not. Nobody ever knew, not even the brown mouse of a wife. Nobody in Blairwater cared, he was a good teacher, and that was all that mattered. Even if he did go on occasional sprees, he always took Saturdays for them and was sober enough by Monday. Sober and especially dignified, wearing a rusty black frock coat which he never put on any other day of the week. He did not invite pity. And he did not pose as tragedy. But sometimes, when Emily looked at his face, bent over the arithmetic problem of Blairwater School, she felt horribly sorry for him, without in the least understanding why. He had an explosive temper, which generally burst into flames at least once a day and then he would storm about wildly for a few minutes, tugging at his beard, imploring heaven to grant him patience, abusing everybody in general, and the luckless object of his wrath in particular. But these tempers never lasted long. In a few minutes, Mr. Carpenter would be smiling graciously as the sun, bursting through a storm cloud, On the very pupil he had been rating. Nobody seemed to cherish any grudge because of his scoldings. He never said any of the biting things Miss Brownell would say, which rankled and festered for weeks. His hail of words fell alike on just and unjust and rolled off harmlessly. He could take a joke on himself in perfectly good nature, Do you hear me? Do you hear me, sir? He bellowed to Perry Miller one day. Of course I hear you, retorted Perry coolly. They could hear you in Charlottetown. Mr. Carpenter stared for a moment, then broke into great, jolly laughter. His methods of teaching were so different from Miss Brownell's that the Blairwater pupils at first felt as if he had stood them on their heads. Miss Brownell had been a stickler for order, Mr. Carpenter never tried to keep order apparently, but somehow he kept the children so busy that they had no time to do mischief. He taught history tempestuously for a month, making his pupils play the different characters and enact the incidents. He never bothered anyone to learn the dates, but the dates stuck in the memory just the same. If, as Mary Queen of Scots, he were beheaded by the school axe, kneeling blindfolded at the doorstep, with Perry Miller wearing a mask made out of a piece of Aunt Laura's old black silk for executioner wondering what would happen if he brought the axe down too hard. You did not forget the year it happened, and if you fought the Battle of Waterloo all over the school playground, and heard Teddy Kent shouting, up guards and at them, as he led the last furious charge, you remembered 1815 without half trying to. Next month, History would be thrust aside altogether, and geography would take its place, when school and playground were mapped out into countries, and you dressed up as the animals inhabiting them, or traded in various commodities over their rivers and cities. When Rhoda Stewart had cheated you in a bargain in the Heights, You remembered that she had brought the cargo from the Argentine Republic and when Perry Miller would not drink any water for a whole hot summer day because he was crossing the Arabian desert with a caravan of camels and could not find an oasis, and then drank so much that he took terrible cramps and Aunt Laura had to be up all night with him. You did not forget where the said desert was. The trustees were quite scandalized over some of the goings-on, and felt sure that the children were having too good a time to be really learning anything. If you wanted to learn Latin and French, you had to do it by talking your exercises, not writing them, and on Friday afternoons, all lessons were put aside and Mr. Carpenter made the children recite poems, make speeches, and declaim passages from Shakespeare and the Bible. This was the day Isla loved. Mr. Carpenter pounced on her gift like a starving dog on a bone, and drilled her without mercy. They had endless fights, and Isla stamped her foot and called him names, while the other pupils wondered why she was not punished for it, but at last had to give in and do as he willed. Isla went to school regularly, something she had never done before. Mr. Carpenter had told her that if she were absent for a day, without good excuse, she could take no part in the Friday exercises, and this would have killed her. One day, Mr. Carpenter had picked up Teddy's slate and found a sketch of himself on it, in one of his favourite, if not exactly beautiful, attitudes. Teddy had labelled it the Black Death. Half of the pupils of the school having died that day of the Great Plague, and having been carried out on stretchers to the potter's field by the terrified survivors. Teddy expected a roar of denunciation. For the day before, Garrett Marshall had been ground into figurative pulp on being discovered with the picture of a harmless cow on his slate. At least, Garrett said he had meant it for a cow. But now this amazing Mr. Carpenter only drew his beetling brows together, looked earnestly at Teddy's slate put it down on the desk, looked at Teddy, and said, I don't know anything about drawing. I can't help you, but, by gad, I think hereafter you'd better give up those extra arithmetic problems in the afternoon and draw pictures. Whereupon Garrett Marshall went home and told his father that old carpenter wasn't fair and made favourites over Teddy Kent. Mr. Carpenter went up to the Tansy Patch that evening and saw the sketches in Teddy's old barn loft studio. Then he went into the house and talked to Mrs. Kent. What he said and what she said, nobody ever knew, but Mr. Carpenter went away looking grim as if he had met an unexpected match. He took great pains with Teddy's general schoolwork after that, and procured from somewhere certain elementary textbooks on drawing which he gave him, telling him not to take them home, a caution Teddy did not require. He knew quite well that if he did, they would disappear as mysteriously as his cats had done. He had taken Emily's advice and told his mother he would not love her if anything happened to Leo, and Leo flourished and waxed fat and doggy. But Teddy was too gentle at heart and too fond of his mother to make such a threat once more. He knew she had cried all that night after Mr. Carpenter had been there, and prayed on her knees in her little bedroom the next day, and looked at him with bitter, haunting eyes for weeks. He wished she were more like other fellow's mothers, but they loved each other very much, and had dear hours together in the little grey house on the Tansy Hill. It was only when other people were about that Mrs. Kent was strange and jealous. She's always lovely when we're alone, Teddy had told Emily. As for the other boys, Perry Miller was the only one Mr. Carpenter bothered much with in the way of speeches, and he was as merciless with him as with Isla. Perry worked hard to please him and practised his speeches in the barn and field, and even by nights in the kitchen loft, until Aunt Elizabeth put a stop to that. Emily could not understand why Mr. Carpenter would smile amiably and say, very good, when Neddy Gray rattled off a speech glibly, without any expression whatever, and then rage at Perry and announce him as a dunce, and an incum poop, by gad, because he had failed to give just the proper emphasis on a certain word, or had timed his gesture a fraction of a second too soon. Neither could she understand why he made red pencil corrections all over her compositions, and rated her for split infinitives and too lavish adjectives and strode up and down the aisle and hurled objurgations at her because she didn't know a good place to stop when she saw it by Dad, and then told Rhoda Stewart and Nan Lee that their compositions were very pretty and gave them back without so much as a mark on them. Yet, in spite of it all, she liked him more and more as time went on, and autumn passed, and winter came, and its beautiful bare-limbed trees, and soft pearl-grey skies that were slashed with rifts of gold in the afternoon, and cleared to a jewelled pageantry of stars over the wide white hills and valleys around New Moon. Emily shot up so that winter, that Aunt Laura had to let down the truck in her dresses. Aunt Ruth, who'd come for a week's visit, said she was outgrowing her strength. Consumptive children always did. I am not consumptive, Emily said. The stars are tall, she added, with a touch of subtle malice, hardly to be looked for in near thirteen. Aunt Ruth, who was sensitive in regard to her dumpiness, sniffed. It would be well if that were the only thing in which you resembled them, she said. How are you getting on in school? Very well, I am the smartest scholar in my class, answered Emily composedly. You conceited child. Said Aunt Ruth. I am not conceited, Emily looked scornfully indignant. Mr. Carpenter said it, and he doesn't flatter. Besides, I can't help seeing it myself. Well, it is to be hoped you have some brains, because you haven't much in the way of looks, said Aunt Ruth. You've no complexion to speak of, and that inky hair around your white face is startling. I see you're going to be a plain girl." You wouldn't say that to a grown-up person's face, said Emily, with a deliberate gravity which always exasperated Aunt Ruth because she could not understand it in a child. I don't think it would hurt you to be as polite to me as you are to other people." "'I'm telling you your faults so you may correct them,' said Aunt Ruth, frigidly. "'It isn't my fault my face is pale and my hair is black,' protested Emily. "'I can't correct that.'" "'If you were a different girl,' said Aunt Ruth. I would, but I don't want to be a different girl, said Emily decidedly. She had no intention of lowering the star flag to Aunt Ruth. I wouldn't want to be anybody but myself, even if I am plain, she added impressively as she turned to go out of the room though I may not be very good-looking now, when I go to heaven, I believe I'll be very beautiful. Some people think Emily quite pretty, said Aunt Laura, but she did not say it until Emily was out of hearing. She was Murray enough for that. I don't know where they see it, said Aunt Ruth. She's vain and pert. And says things to be thought smart. You heard her just now. But the thing I dislike most in her is that she is unchildlike and deep as the sea. Yes, she is Laura, deep as the sea. You'll find it out at your cost one day if you disregard my warning. She's capable of anything. Sly is no word for it. You and Elizabeth don't keep a tight enough rein over her." "'I've done my best,' said Elizabeth stiffly. She herself did think she had been much too lenient with Emily. Laura and Jimmy were two to one, but it nettled her to have Ruth say so. Uncle Wallace also had an attack of worrying over Emily that winter. He looked at her one day when she was at New Moon and remarked that she was getting to be a big girl. How old are you, Emily? He asked her that every time he came to New Moon. Thirteen in May. Hmm. What are you going to do with her, Elizabeth? I don't know what you mean, said Aunt Elizabeth, coldly, or as coldly as is possible to speak when one is pouring melted tallow into candle molds. Why, she's soon to be grown up. She can't expect you to provide for her indefinitely. I don't, Emily whispered resentfully under her breath and it's time we decided what is best to be done for her. The Murray women have never had to work out for a living, said Aunt Elizabeth, as if that disposed of the matter. Emily is only half Murray, said Wallace. Besides, times are changing. You and Laura will not live forever, Elizabeth, and when you are gone... New Moon goes to Oliver's Andrew. In my opinion, Emily should be fitted to support herself if necessary. Emily did not like Uncle Wallace, but she was very grateful to him at that moment. Whatever his motives were, he was proposing the very thing she secretly yearned for. I would suggest, said Uncle Wallace that she be sent to Queen's Academy to get a teacher's license. Teaching is a genteel, ladylike occupation. I will do my share in providing for the expense of it. A blind person might have seen that Uncle Wallace thought this very splendid of himself. If you do, thought Emily, I'll pay every cent back to you as soon as I'm able to earn it." But Aunt Elizabeth was adamant. I do not believe in girls going out into the world, she said. I don't mean Emily to go to Queens. I told Mr. Carpenter so when he came to see me about her taking the entrance work. He was very rude. School teachers knew their place better in my father's time. But I made him understand, I think. I'm rather surprised at you, Wallace. You did not send your own daughter out to work. My daughter had parents to provide for her, retorted Uncle Wallace pompously. Emily is an orphan. I imagined from what I had heard about her that she would prefer earning her own living to living on charity. So I would, cried out Emily. So I would, Uncle Wallace. Oh, Aunt Elizabeth, please let me study for the entrance. Please. I'll pay you back every cent you spend on me. I will indeed. I pledge you my word of honor. "'It does not happen to be a question of money,' said Aunt Elizabeth in her stateliest manner. "'I undertook to provide for you, Emily, and I will do it. When you are older, I may send you to high school in Shrewsbury for a couple of years. I am not decrying education, but you are not going to be a slave to the public. No Murray girl ever was that. Emily, realizing the uselessness of pleading, went out in the same bitter disappointment she had felt after Mr. Carpenter's visit. Then Aunt Elizabeth looked at Wallace. "'Have you forgotten what came of sending Juliet to Queens?' she asked significantly. If Emily was not allowed to take up the entrance classes, Perry had no one to say him nay, and he went at them with the same dogged determination he showed in all other matters. Perry's status at New Moon had changed subtly and steadily. Aunt Elizabeth had ceased to refer scornfully to him as a hired boy, Even she recognized, though he was still indubitably a hired boy, he was not going to remain one, and she no longer objected to Laura's patching up his ragged bits of clothing, or to Emily's helping him with his lessons in the kitchen after supper. Nor did she growl when Cousin Jimmy began to pay him a certain small wage, though older boys than Perry were still glad to put in the winter months' choring for board and lodging in some comfortable home. If a future premiere was in the making at New Moon, Aunt Elizabeth wanted to have some small share in the making. It was credible and commendable that a boy should have ambitions. A girl was an entirely different matter. A girl's place, was at home. Emily helped Perry work out algebra problems and heard his lessons in French and Latin. She picked up more thus than Aunt Elizabeth would have approved, and more still when the entrance pupils talked those languages in school. It was quite an easy matter for a girl who had once upon a time invented a language of her own when George Bates, by way of showing off, asked her one day in French, his French, of which Mr. Carpenter had once said doubtfully, but perhaps God might understand it. Have you the ink of my grandmother, and the shoe brush of my cousin, and the umbrella of my aunt's husband in your desk? Emily retorted quite as glibly and quite as Frenchly. No, but I have the pen of your father, and the cheese of your innkeeper, and the towel of your uncle's maidservant in my basket." To console herself for her disappointment in regard to the entrance class, Emily wrote more poetry than ever. It was especially delightful to write poetry on a winter evening, when the storm winds howled without and heaped the garden and orchard with big ghostly drifts, starred over with rabbits' candles. She also wrote several stories, desperate love affairs, wherein she struggled heroically against the difficulties of affectionate dialogue tales of bandits and pirates. Emily liked these because there was no necessity for bandits and pirates to converse lovingly. Tragedies of earls and countesses whose conversation she dearly loved to pepper with scraps of French, and a dozen other subjects she didn't know anything about. She also meditated beginning a novel but decided it would be too hard to get enough paper for it. The letter bills were all done now, and the jimmy books were not big enough, though a new one always appeared mysteriously in her school basket when the old one was almost full. Cousin Jimmy seemed to have an uncanny preciseness of the proper time. That was part of his jimminess. Then one night, As she lay in her lookout bed and watched a full moon gleaming lustrously from a cloudless sky across the valley, she had a sudden, dazzling idea. She would send her latest poem to the Charlottetown Enterprise. The Enterprise had a poet's corner, where original verses were frequently printed. Privately, Emily thought her own were quite as good as probably they were, for most of these Enterprise poems were sad trash. Emily was so excited over the idea that she could not sleep for the greater part of the night, and didn't want to. It was glorious to lie there, thrilling in the darkness, and picture the whole thing out. She saw her verses in print, signed E-Bird Star. She saw Aunt Laura's eyes shining with pride. She saw Mr. Carpenter pointing them out to strangers. The work of a pupil of mine, by Gad. She saw all her schoolmates envying her or admiring her, according to their type. She saw herself with one foot at least firmly planted on the ladder of fame. One hill at least of the alpine path crested, with a new and glorious prospect opening therefrom. Morning came. Emily went to school, so absent-minded because of her secret that she did badly in everything and was raged at by Mr. Carpenter but it all slipped off her like the proverbial water off a duck's back. Her body was in Blairwater School, but her spirit was in Kingdoms Imperial. As soon as school was out, she betook herself to the garret with a half-sheet of blue-lined notepaper. Very painstakingly, she copied down the poem, being especially careful to dot every I and cross every T. She wrote it on both sides of the paper, being in blissful ignorance of any taboo thereon. Then she read it aloud, delightedly, not omitting the title, Evening Dreams. There was one line in it she tasted two or three times the haunting elven music of the air. I think that line is very good," said Emily. I wonder now how I happened to think of it. She mailed her poem the next day, and lived in delicious, mystic rapture until the following Saturday. When the Enterprise came, she opened it with tremulous eagerness. And ice cold fingers, and turned to the poet's corner. Now for her great moment. There was not a sign of an evening dream about it. Emily threw down the enterprise and fled to the garret dormer, where, face downward on the old haircloth sofa, she wept out her bitterness of disappointment. She drained the draught of failure to the very dregs. It was horribly real and tragic to her. She felt exactly as if she had been slapped in the face. She was crushed in the very dust of humiliation and was sure that she would never rise again. How thankful she was that she hadn't told Teddy anything about it she had been so strongly tempted to, and only refrained because she didn't want to spoil the dramatic surprise of the moment when she would show him the verses with her name signed to them. She had told Perry, and Perry was furious when he saw her tear-stained face later on in the dairy as they strained the milk together. Ordinarily, Emily loved this But tonight, the savour had gone out of the world. Even the milky splendour of the still, mild winter evening, and the purple bloom over the hillside woods that presaged a thaw could not give her the accustomed soul thrill. I'm going to Charlottetown if I have to walk, and I'll bust that Enterprise Editor's head, said Perry with the expression which, thirty years later, warned the members of his party to scatter for cover. That wouldn't be any use, said Emily drearily. He didn't think it good enough to print. That is what hurts me so, Perry. He didn't think it any good. Busting his head wouldn't change that. It took her a week to recover from the blow, then she wrote a story in which the editor of the Enterprise played the part of a dark and desperate villain who found lodging eventually behind prison bars. This got the venom out of her system, and she forgot all about him in the delight of writing a poem addressed to Sweet Lady April but I question if she really forgave him, even when she discovered eventually that she must not write on both sides of the paper, even when she read over Evening Dreams a year later and wondered how she could ever have thought it any good. This sort of thing frequently happens now. Every time she reads her little hoard of manuscripts over, She found some of which the fairy gold had unaccountably turned to withered leaves, fit only for the burning. Emily burned them, but it hurt her a little. Outgrowing things we love is never a pleasant process.